Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Division is a tactic of the enemy to get Christians to turn on and devour one another. It happened in the tribes of Israel, and it still happens today. We need to remember what Ephesians 6 says, that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Here is part one of Cheryl's message titled, The Great Misunderstanding. So one of the greatest problems facing believers today is that once we begin to settle into the promises, we've conquered the enemy, we're at rest in our allotments from the Lord, you know, we're like, oh, you know, I've got peace on my borders, everything is going great, that I have seen this, and it's not a good thing. But I have seen Christians begin to turn on other Christians. And suddenly they begin to disqualify other Christians. They begin to disinherit other Christians. Like, oh, I'm not related to them. They're not real Christians. I'm a real Christian. They begin to divide against each other. Like, did you hear what they did? What do you think about that? Are you on my side? Are you on their side? Begin to disagree. I mean, publicly, uh, voraciously. They begin to disassociate disregard, dismiss, and even discredit. You see, we too easily turn our hearts away from those who have fought for us, fought that we might have the promises of God, prayed for us, fought alongside of us, sought our best, you know, prayed for us. David said, you know, I prayed for them when they were on their sickbed, and then they turned against me, David, the psalmist. Or we turn our hearts away from those who have desired to see us live in the promises of God. How does this happen? How does that happen to us who are believers? I'll tell you, it is when we stop fighting the real enemy of our soul. When we stop fighting Satan, our own flesh, and the devil, that's when we will begin to turn on each other. Because we forget what Paul told us. In Ephesians chapter 6, that our real battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And when we forget this, we lose the value of the souls that Jesus died for. We need to remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We live in the world among the humans, among the mankind that God so loved, so desired that he sent his only son that they would not perish, but have everlasting life. We forget that God goes after the one in 99. He goes after the lost. He goes after the sinners and that all of heaven rejoices It erupts in joy over a sinner that comes to salvation. 
and we forget how costly the redemption of our brothers and sisters were, that it cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ to redeem that person. It tells us in Psalm 49, 8, for the redemption of their soul is costly. We forget that every believer is a miracle of God. It's like we should look at each other and go, you received the good news. I received the good news. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. We should be so thankful that we're not the only ones in the world who know Jesus, but that we have this huge family. We should remember that every believer is a testimony to the power of the gospel. We can look at other believers and say, see, look at them. It works. See them. It works. It works. It works. The gospel works. Every believer is beloved and treasured by God. Is that how we're looking at and considering our brothers and sisters? Are we looking at each other and going, oh, you treasure of God? Oh, you beloved? Because that's what we should be doing. But we forget. We stop listening to other believers and we start judging with our eyes. And when we stop seeking the welfare of the whole body of God for all those who are in Christ Jesus, when we stop seeking that welfare, the best for the whole body, assumption and presumption begin to prevail. We begin to assume and presume about others And I believe that presumption and assumption are the evil twins of misunderstanding and folly. Because what happens is we begin to think that it is our righteousness or our personal morality or our methodology, the way we do things, that is the great witness to the world. But the truth is, and what Jesus told us in John 13, 35, it's not our morality. It's not our righteousness. It's not our methodology, but it is our love for one another that testifies to the world that we are truly the disciples of Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness and outward morality can create competition and pride rather than love and grace. This is not a new problem, nor is this problem exclusive to the church It has been around ever since creation. And it is something that we see in Joshua 22 that the children of Israel struggled with. The Bible exhorts us that rather than rushing to judgment, we are to believe the best about each other. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that wonderful chapter on love. It says, love believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. In verse 7, in James 1.19, it tells us as believers, we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. In other words, we're supposed to listen. We had a pastor for ages. Um, he became very famous. He used to be a drill sergeant, and his name was Romaine. And he would always say, God gave you two ears and one mouth because you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Only that was true of all of us. But we're told in Romans 14, 19, we are to pursue peace and the things that make for peace. First Peter 1, 22 says, we are to love one another fervently. 
because love covers a multitude of sins. We're told that we're to be thankful for one another, as Paul says in Philippians 1.3, that I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Isn't that incredible that every time Paul thought about the Philippian church, about their salvation, about what God had done in their lives, he says the same thing to the Thessalonians. Every time I think about you, I'm so thankful. I just thank God and I begin to pray and praise. And we are to seek to bless others. First Peter 3.9 tells us that we are called to bless, that we might be a blessing and be blessed. I think in the church today, and the, in the, maybe it's Facebook and all the divisions we see on that, and people are saying things on Facebook, typing things that they would never say in front of somebody. And they're cruel things. But I think that there is way too much cursing going on, dismissal, degrading of people. And we need to seek the Lord Jesus Christ that we might truly, truly love one another as he loves us. This is the will of God, that we would love one another fervently. In Judges 22, 1 through 9, we see the integrity of the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that live on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua calls these tribes together and he commends them for all that they were tasked with. They did everything Moses commanded them. They did. They kept the charge that Moses had given them. These men delayed their own gratification to fight for the other tribes of Israel that they might settle in and claim their inheritance. These men delayed moving into their own inheritance until all the allotments were given out, until every other tribe moved into their territory. Not only that, but these men fought for their brethren, that their brethren might have their allotment, that their brethren might enjoy all the promises of God. These men sacrificed their own welfare, their own lives, their own comfort, their own families, being with their families for the other tribes of Israel. And now that all the tribes have their allotments, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half of Manasseh may return to the eastern side of Jordan and begin to live in their possessions in the land given to them by the word of the Lord through Moses. However, before they leave, before they cross over to the other side of Jordan, Joshua has a special charge for them. In Joshua 22, 5, he says, But take diligent heed to the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to the Lord, to serve him with all your heart and soul. This reminds me of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Joshua is saying, you might be crossing over, and you're going to be settling into your land, and things are going to go much easier, but you need to remember the commands of God and to hold fast to everything that the Lord has told you and to serve him. This charge is to be their top priority. If they keep this charge, they will be blessed. They will multiply. They will prosper. They just need to continue to put the Lord first. 
Joshua then blesses them in verse 7. And in verse 8, he gives them their share of the spoils. They go with his blessing, his commendation, his affirmation, his gifts, and this charge. This charge, which if they obey, they will prosper. Now on the way back, they become concerned. Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh and Reuben, we learn in verse 24 that they're afraid that the Western tribes at some point will try to exclude them from the blessing and heritage of God. They say, you know, we fought for these guys, but you know, I don't know if I can, we can really trust, you know, Asher and Zebulon and Dan and Judah. So in order to safeguard themselves against future division, they build a replica of God's altar at Shiloh. They built a replica of the altar on which the sacrifices for Israel are made every day. And then, of course, for the whole nation once a year on Yom Kippur. Perhaps they are remembering when they crossed over the Jordan with the other tribes of Israel and how Joshua had 12 of the leaders collect stones out of the midst of the Jordan and set them up at the camp of Gilgal so that all the children would remember what God had done. Perhaps they wanted a monument to remember what God had done. We know that they wanted it so that the Western tribe of Israel, Western tribes of Israel would remember that the Eastern tribe, those on the east side of Jordan, were also their brethren, were also loved, were also part and partakers in the blessing of God. Now the children of Israel, those on the Western side, according to verse 11, heard someone say. Isn't that how it always starts? Well, I heard someone say. I had this uh, friend of mine when I lived in Vista and was part of the women's ministry. She'd always come to me. She said, now someone said. There was never a name. It was always someone said. And I'm like, who is someone? Who is this person that's always saying something? You know, something that we have to do. And I said, unless they come to me, they must not really mean it. I want to see their face. I want them to say to me face to face, then I'll know. But it was always someone said. And always that someone, whoever that someone was, was creating a lot of problems and always complaining. But it begins with this outward observation that someone assumes or presumes with what they see. Then people weigh in on what it means. I saw that they erected an altar on the western shore of Jordan. And somebody says, what? They built an altar? <gasps> they're turning to idolatry. And somebody else says, oh no, they're trying to say that they own the western side and the eastern side. And it leads to a judgment call. And we're, we read in this passage that everyone took up arms at Shiloh. In other words, the other nine and a half tribes, they all gather together at Shiloh and they've come together with their swords and with their clubs and, you know, with whatever instruments of war that they've had. They come, they are just, because of what they heard, because of what someone said, they are armed and ready for war. This is what was said. And this is what it evolved into. Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side occupied by the children of Israel. 
I, I just want to comment on this. Someone said just just one more time. When I was a little girl, I used to sneak in at night into my mom and dad's bedroom. And I loved to sleep with them. I'd get scared. I had a room on the front of the house. I'd hear voices and people talking. And so I would run down the hallway into their room. Well, my mom, she would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and sometimes see apparitions and stuff. And so this one night she woke up and she had this styrofoam head that held a wiglet. I don't know how many of you remember wiglets, but those were like those hair pieces that women used to put on the back of their head so they looked like they had more hair and it was all curled so they could just stick their hair in a ponytail and put this wiglet on and look, you know, coiffured. And so mom had this wiglet on top of this white styrofoam head. Because it was the middle of the night, she's just waking up. She thought that the wiglet instead of me, was moving towards her, that this white styrofoam head was coming right at her. And my mom began to scream. And my mom could scream. Man, that woman has vocal cords. And my dad was sound asleep, and he just rolled over and covered her mouth. So now her mouth is covered. So she's really like, ah, 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 and she can't think because she just is awakened, you know, to hit my dad or to stop him. So she's screaming. I'm trying to sneak into their bed. I just fall on the floor and start crying really loudly because I'm scared to death. The next thing I know, my brothers come rushing in. One's got a baseball bat. One's got like a hockey stick. And then my sister comes running down the hall with a lamp. You know, and somebody has the good sense to finally turn on the light. And you realize, no, the wiglet is not flying around the room. And my dad sleeps through all of it. He's still asleep. You know, I'm crying. The boys are yelling. My sister's like, well, get you, you terrible person. And my mom's screaming and my dad's sleeping. And my mom just finally, she takes, she's like, Chuck, wake up, wake up. We just had an emergency. You slept through all of it. We just all laughed. But again, you know, that's, someone said, you know, it started out with me going into my parents' room at night because I was afraid and turned into this whole fiasco. But think about all the things that start with just this small little thing and turn into this big fiasco. And that's what happened. Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were just concerned that their brethren might try to exclude them. And the next thing you know, the other tribes are taking up arms against them. Now, like the infamous game of operator where the message gets all jumbled up as it moves from person's ear to another, as the word spread throughout the tribes of Israel, the misunderstanding grew. Nine and a half tribes on the western side armed for war against their brethren. It's interesting to me to note that they were ready to go against their brethren, even though they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Instead of driving out the Canaanites in their own territory, they're ready to go attack their brethren on the other side of Jordan. Those who made allowances for the Jebusites to stay in Jerusalem are ready to go and attack their brethren. Those who were intimidated by the chariots in the valley are ready to go and attack their brethren. In other words, those who wouldn't fight the real enemies are ready to go and destroy their own brethren. Those who wouldn't possess their whole territory are willing to drive the eastern tribes out of their territory. This often happens when we forget, again, who the real enemy is and his tactics. Now, at this point, Phineas, who is the son of Eliezer, who is the son of Aaron, he has a suggestion. If you remember Phineas from Numbers 25, 
He is the priest that is zealous for the Lord against the scourge of the Moabite idolatry. In Numbers 25, the story is given about the Moabite women that came into the camp of Israel right as Israel is about to go over into the Jordan. These Moabite women come into the camp of Israel and they begin to seduce the young men into fornication. And while the men are committing fornication with these young women, these young women bring out their idols and we're told that they led 24,000 Israelite men into sin because of idolatry. And these 24,000 men perished. At the same time, Phineas, he's zealous for the Lord and for the promises of God. And he runs after one of the leaders of Israel who is blatantly defying the law of the Lord. And he runs in after this leader and his mistress. And it's a little gory. He spears them through while they're in the tent. Because this leader, again, was violently and publicly violating the command of the Lord. Now God commended Phineas and said to Moses, therefore say, behold, I give to Phineas my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Isn't it interesting through this violent act, he showed zeal for the Lord and God gave him a covenant of peace. So now, as we're looking at this situation, this misunderstanding, Phineas is the right man for the job. He will do what is right before God. He will not hold back, even if it means violence. But yet, he's part of a covenant of peace with God. He is head of the tabernacle at Shiloh. He is the spiritual representative of Israel. He is zealous for the people of God. He is zealous for the promises of God. He is zealous for God. And the covenant of peace with God he's, is with him. So he chooses 10 rulers out of the nine and a half tribes in Israel. And they are going with him to meet with the eastern Israeli tribes. I love that Phineas does not go with the army of Israel. He says, no, you guys stay here. You know, kind of let your weapons just rest for a moment. Let me just go with 10 people. Let me just go with the judges, the ruler of the different tribes, and, and let me just hear them out. So they meet with the Eastern tribes and strong accusations are waged. We read these strong accusations in verses 16 through 20. Treachery, which is betrayal and trespass. They're accused of treachery, that they committed this treachery against God. They're accused of turning away from following the Lord. They're accused of building an altar for the purpose of rebellion against the Lord. They're told that they've forgotten their history. They've forgotten Numbers 25, which we were talking about earlier, the seduction by the Moabite women, where there were 24,000 casualties at Peor. They've forgotten about Achan, the son of Zerah, who took what was forbidden in the battle at Jericho, Joshua 7, and because of Achan, 35 men of Israel were killed. In other words, they're saying to these men, your sin is not just going to affect you, but it's going to affect the whole nation of Israel. And we're mad at you because your sin is ultimately going to hurt us. So they offer a solution or a remedy. You know, often we get in our minds what repentance should look like. 
You know, it's not just that we want that person to say they're sorry. We have a way that they want. We want them to say they're sorry. You ever do that to your husband? He says, I'm sorry. And you're like, no, you don't mean it. And he's like, sorry. Nope, nope, that didn't do it either. What do you want from me? I want flowers. I want three boxes of chocolate and a gift certificate to South Coast Plaza. And then I'll think about what repentance looks like for you. You know, but we always kind of have these stipulations. Joshua gave the tribes of Israel the key to spiritual success when he instructed them to love the Lord their God, walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, hold fast to the Lord, and to serve him with all their heart and soul. If they made this charge their top priority, they would have been blessed and prospered. Jesus echoed this principle in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As we seek the Lord, we will have all we need because He is all we need. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at the destruction of division as we continue our Possessing the Promises series in the book of Joshua with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.